Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Forma, a podcast that features conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture. I'm David Kern. Today's guest is Mr. Brad Berzer. He is a professor at Hillsdale College. He is, in fact, the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and a professor of history at Hillsdale College. And he is the second visiting scholar of conservative thought and policy at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's the author of American Cicero, The Life of Charles Carroll, and Sanctifying the World, The Augustinian Life and Mind of Christopher Dawson. He's a co-founder and senior contributor to The Imaginative Conservative. But the reason that he is on Forma, the reason that he's on this podcast this week, is that he is also the author of Russell Kirk, American Conservative, one of the very best biographies of Russell Kirk. Tomorrow, October 19th, marks the centenary of the birth of Russell Kirk. So here at Forma, we've been celebrating Russell Kirk Week. We have Russell Kirk-themed content all throughout the week. In addition to this podcast, which you're listening to right now, we posted an interview with Russell Kirk's daughter, Andrea Kirk Asaf, about growing up Kirk, about growing up in that home and about preserving the legacy of her father and his work. We ran an article uh, by Annette Kirk, Russell's wife, about her life with him. And we ran Gerald J. Russello's article, which is a Russell Kirk primer. Gerald is the editor of The University Bookman, a publication founded by Russell Kirk. We're going to have a lot of other content going on throughout this whole week, so I hope you'll continue to check in. But today on the podcast, we're bringing you this interview that I conducted with Brad Berzer about the life and work of Russell Kirk. We talked about a number of things, ranging from the eccentric family that he comes from in Michigan to his desire to be more like his mother's family. We talked about what Russell Kirk would think of our present political and cultural climate, his fiction and his nonfiction alike. We talked about why Russell Kirk considered himself to be lazy, despite the fact that he wrote millions and millions of words and thousands and thousands of articles and several lengthy books. And finally, we also talked about Kirk's journey from skeptic to stoic to Christian. If you like Russell Kirk and you like his work, then I think that you will really enjoy Brad Berzer's enthusiasm for the man. If you're unfamiliar with Kirk but would like to know more, then I think this is an excellent primer in why Russell Kirk still matters today and what made him such an interesting intellectual figure, but also such an interesting human being. So I'll get you over to that interview in just a second. First, I need to say a quick word from our friends over at the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University, where they are preparing the next generation of Christian leaders through a great book's course of study that emphasizes faith, wisdom, and virtue. Honors students at Azusa Pacific enjoy several benefits, including an honors scholarship, small Socratic-style classes, a curriculum with no secondary textbooks, exams, or busy work, exemption from general ed courses, access to honors housing, and, maybe this is best of all, free trips to world-class arts experiences across Southern California. If you would like to learn more about the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University, head over to apu.edu slash honors. Again, that's apu.edu slash honors. So thank you so much to the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University for making this podcast possible this month. 
And finally, before I kick it over to the interview, don't forget that you can subscribe to Forma today. It's just $4 a month or $39 a year to get each episode of our new quarterly journal, the first of which we'll be mailing out in January of 2019. But next week, we will also be starting to send out our uh, featured content specifically for subscribers via email. And this subscription will also give you access to all of the magazine archives. If you're interested in learning about that, head over to forma.com and click on the new subscriber tab. Let's get over to my conversation with Brad Berzer about the one and only Russell Kirk. Enjoy. Well, first of all, thank you for being here on, on Forma. Thanks for taking part in this Russell Kirk this Russell Kirk week, our celebration of the centenary of his birth. So I really appreciate you joining me for the podcast. Thanks, David. It's been a while since we've seen each other, so it's great to great to catch up again. And I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, of course. Yeah. How are things over at Hillsdale? Fine, actually. We finally have fall. I think the hurricanes <laughs> were pushing up a lot of humidity. So uh, not yeah. that I have much to complain about. I think the people in Florida have far more to complain about. But yeah, yeah. I'm definitely ready for fall to hit. So, And how about for you? Things going well? Yeah, we're in North Carolina. So we got um, both of those storms hit us. What the, the Michael wasn't quite as direct a hit, but it had more. It blew through in like an hour but it had the faster wind. So more trees fell and things like that. Yeah. So, Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad you're fine. Yeah. We're ready for some fall as well here. Um, but you mentioned fall and that got me thinking immediately. I'm not sure why about the fact that Russell Kirk was from Michigan and we are here to talk about um, his life a little bit and to celebrate that and celebrate his work. Um, and you're at, you're in Hillsdale, which is also in Michigan. And one of the things that I that stood out for me from your biography of Russell Kirk was um, some of the some of the ways that he interacted with the world around him. I think some people think of him as sort of a bookish type. <laughs> Maybe it's because he wrote so many thousands and thousands and thousands of words. <laughs> yes. But but he also and and his daughters and his wife have talked about this as well. He seemed to be very interested and consumed by and taken by the natural world in a way that sort of balanced out his more intellectual pursuits. Would you say that that is a fair way of putting it when in, in studying his work that, and his life that that, that is an um, accurate assessment? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's beautifully put, David. There, there's something in Kirk, not only in the way that he hiked, but the way that he planted trees, the way that he thought about nature itself, whether it was out in the Great Salt Lake Desert or somewhere maybe in China, uh, Taiwan, wherever he was at the time, South Africa, Europe. He always seemed to have a kind of sacramental understanding of nature, a very tangible understanding of it, uh, whether wherever he was and even before he had become a Christian. And we could put it in terms like sacramentality, even when he was still a Stoic, uh, especially in World War II, we see that his kind of love of nature is always there. And there's also a kind of interesting repentance on his part, too, because he always regretted that his family had made money by clearing the trees out of Michigan, that they had made money in the lumber business. He used to talk about it as, as raping the land. And he thought that through that kind of rape, as he put it, that there was an unholiness that had crept across the land. And he thought it was his duty and our duty to bring a kind of sacramentality back to it. So, yeah, even when he's pagan, he's still thinking like that. And I agree, David, it's hard for me anyway. It's very hard to think about fall, autumn at all without two figures popping up, one Ray Bradbury and the other Russell Kirk. They both hmm. just kind of, I think. It, friends, right? They were friends. Is that right? 
yeah, they were actually very good friends and uh, they had a lot in common with one another. Uh, almost the exact same age. Certainly both. Uh, they had daughters, lots of daughters. <laughs> uh, yeah, their writing, their imagination, everything. I think there's a lot in common there. Do, do you see at Hillsdale, I mean, is that is the influence of Kirk's love of the natural world and his um, attempts to preserve it? Is that something that you see in the way that people are uh, studying him and thinking about him? Or, or do you find that um, at Hillsdale and elsewhere, yeah. it's primarily the intellectual side that people care about with Kirk. Yeah, you know, I think generally, David, that when people do think of Kirk, they do think, as you said very nicely, of the bookish side of Kirk. And I, I think there are a lot of people who have a very hard time reconciling that Kirk was not only a, a great conservationist and nature lover, but also a, a writer of horror stories and fiction. So a lot of people know he was a conservative, and a lot of people know he wrote horror fiction, but very few people really recognize or, or believe that both things happened at the same time. And yet, I think it's critical to understand both of those, to understand him. And I'm sorry, I dropped my pin there. And uh, <laughs> you know, I think the, the idea that he bridged them is really important. And it does come through, just as you said, through the kind of natural understanding of things. Hmm. I want to, I have questions about that. The idea of his fiction and the sure. way that he sort of looks at conservatism um, as more than just politics, um, that literature and the arts play into a, a, a kind of true understanding of conservatism. And I want to come back to that, but I want to talk about what you mentioned about his family because you mentioned that he had some sort of guilt in some ways, some regrets for the way his family's made their money, his family made their money. And in your book, you talk about his grandfather, um, the relationship he had with his grandfather. And you also uh, talk a little, a little bit about um, the sort of eccentricities of his Michigan family. Could you, could you talk a little bit about, we you know where he came from and you know, the, 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 fa- the family history and some of those things that people might not know as much about? Yeah, so David, it's interesting. His his family is a very old American family on one side. They had actually come over in 1623, and they follow the kind of model of a lot of New England Puritans, where you know, the first two generations of the Puritans are really, really devout. And then we get to the third generation and everything breaks down. You know, the witch trials are an obvious example of that. But you start seeing so much breakdown in the Puritan community in New England. And a lot of those people either become heretical or heterodox in some way. Certainly, they're no longer strict Calvinists as they had been in the first few generations. And then, of course, those families migrate. They migrate through upstate New York, Pennsylvania, and into the Great Lakes. And Kirk's family kind of perfectly modeled that old family, but losing their faith. And yet we both know, uh, and I'm sure the audience knows as well, very few generations live continuously without faith. Uh, If they give up their faith or proclaim atheism, they almost always adopt some kind of God, whatever that God may be. And for Kirk's family, being very intellectual and very bookish, they became uh, spiritualists, uh, Swedenborgians, and they they were involved in seances. In fact, it was one of Kirk's relatives who was the great seeress, the prophetess of Macosta, Michigan. And they used to read fortunes, he leaves, they levitated things according to Kirk. So there was a deep aspect to that family that Kirk was raised with. However, you mentioned his grandfather as well is on his mother's side. Right. 
that was Franklin. That was Frank Pierce. And in Kirk's eyes, he could do no wrong. Pierce was the ultimate man. And really, even though he was Kirk's grandfather, he served as a father figure for Kirk. Kirk never really had a lot of love for his own biological father. He did for his mother an intense love and respect, but not really for his father. And But for his grandfather, that is his mother's dad, there was an intense admiration there. And really, I think so much of Kirk's life can be explained, not to psychoanalyze him too much, but I think a lot can sure. be explained in his attempt to live up both to his mother's expectations and to his mother's father's expectations. Those were really his heroes in life. But there's no doubt that on the Kirk side, especially a lot of weird spirituality and not that uncommon for the turn of the 19th into the 20th centuries. You know, people like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle in England were very involved in this, but it, it just wasn't that atypical for Protestants who had lost their faith to kind of gravitate towards a spiritualism. And that that's where Kirk came in, uh, being raised in that, born in 1918. You know, it's interesting, David, and I'm sure a lot of your audience will know this, but Irving Babbitt, you know, one of the great defenders of the liberal arts at the beginning mm-hmm. of the 20th century, his father was a, a new age kind of con man too. Uh, very learned, uh, but went around and sold crystals to people mm-hmm. that he claimed could change the, the gender of their children. They would rub crystals on a pregnant belly. And I think he made his money that way. And the guys you can't oh, prove you didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> very well put, David. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so it's a weird thing. So it seems like in some ways Kirk was, and I don't know if this is the right word. It might have negative connotations, although maybe appropriate ones given the time sure. of the year that we're talking about. But it seems like then Kirk was a little bit a little haunted by his father's side of the family. And that in leaning towards his mother and and his um, maternal grandfather, that maybe he was trying to um, find a balance in in and I've used that word a couple of times now, but find a balance in in the way he thought thought about the world. Would that be a fair way of putting it? And then would you say that? And while I and while I say that he's haunted, it also seems like he kind of leans into the spiritualist side of his family. Um, that if nothing else, it interests him because, as you said, he wrote horror fiction and. Um, you write in your book about how early on, especially Babbitt was a huge influence on him before he sort of turned towards Kirk and Dawson and, and Burke. Right. But so it seems like in some ways he's leaning into the things that, in, that sort of um, the sort of um, weirdness of his father's side of the family while also trying to sort of avoid becoming like that. I mean, it's, it seems very, there's a very complicated dynamic there. Yeah, and I think you put it perfectly. There is a complicated dynamic, and he is trying to seek balance. So he rejects, as a young man, he rejects the religion of his father's side, that spiritualism. But he's always fascinated with it, too. And he recognizes it as a really important part of his own family heritage. So he he wrote, not only did he write his horror fiction, which I think was his attempt at exercising, you know, E-X-O-R, sorry, my Kansas accent. Right. Right. <laughs> Exorcising, but exorcising. Right, um, right. I was trying to do that, but he was also, there's no doubt that he had a, we may even say unhealthy, but he certainly had a very strong fascination with all of that. And he even wrote in the late 1960s, he wrote a couple of pieces, some of them quite academic, about the actual physical and spiritual nature of ghosts and how we might think of them in terms of theology with purgatory. So yeah, he was not adverse at all to trying to look at some of that supernatural. I think, though, that he did try to keep it into context. Um, 
for the most part. I, I, but he's a romantic too, and he's an eccentric. So a lot of things come out. You know, he's still reading tarot cards well into his adult life, hmm. and it wouldn't be really until about the mid nineteen seventies that he started realizing that was probably not a healthy thing to do. Hmm. But he was actually a pretty famous tarot reader during his forties uh, and into his fifties. So people would come from all over to have him read their tarot. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not stuff I want to mess with. But <laughs> yeah. And uh, for whatever reason, I think he had a certain innocence about him that allowed him to get away with that in ways probably most of us couldn't. What do you mean by that? The innocence well, part. There was always a, there was always something to him. Uh, I, I think in many ways, and I don't mean this to be offensive at all to anybody, and I hope no one takes it this way. I think there were a couple of elements in Kirk that we would probably describe as autistic. Now, uh, I think mm-hmm. there were. He's a genius. He has a photographic memory. But he has some social, uh, weird social oddities about him. He's very intensely shy, right, uh, right. intensely, I think, beyond the norm. And you know, there was a, an aspect of him that I find endearing, but I could see how someone would be put off by the way that he was so quiet in certain circumstances. And yet, of course, he meets Annette when he's older, and Annette, his wife, who's still you know, very much around and in great health, mm-hmm. uh, who's 22 years younger than he was, is she, I think she kind of became his social life in a lot of ways once they got married. But he always kind of kept that odd, those odd habits. I never met him, David, so I can't speak personally. This is only what I've read. I think he did have some truly, some things that we would just not recognize as normal now, but as at the time, they would have just been regarded as eccentric. Mm. But there's a healthiness there. You know, even in his... I laugh at this now, but there's an innocence, for example, in his first autobiography, which is published in 1963, uh, yeah, Confessions of a Bohemian Tory, but it, his opening is The Gothic Mind. And he, his second paragraph, he says, you know, though I'm in my 40s and I've dated many women, I'm still a virgin. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, thanks for telling us that. <laughs> huh. I'm not sure we needed to know that. Um, but I think that was central to his, I, I think there really was a kind of deep, humbling innocence in him that mm. even when he was a pagan, he still, he, he bought into a lot of those values and virtues that most people had kind of forgotten at the time. Um, I'm, I, we have another podcast that we do called Close Reads where we read pretty slowly through through great novels. And we're reading through The Power and the Glory right now. So I've been doing a little bit of reading about Graham Greene, just kind of sure. background reading. And in some ways, for some reason, and it might just be that it's, the fact that I'm reading about both of these two figures at the same time, there seems to be in, in some of the eccentricities to use to borrow the word that you use in some of their eccentricities, there seems to be some similarities, and um, in terms of how they sort of withdrew um, right. kind of into themselves, and that that kind of became where um, sort of in withdrawing they were able to produce this great work. Do you think that, like for Green, in some ways, and I don't know how familiar you are. You with, with him, but like for Green, Kirk's ability to produce the way he did came because of that sort of not just the shyness, but the way he withdrew into himself. Um, and we did we read an interview today actually with his daughter, and she says that in some ways she thinks that he was he was so shy, but he was so thoughtful, and so he had the writing was how he sort of got the things out that he was thinking about. Do you think that those two things came hand in hand that that the withdrawing but also the expression. Like, in other words, do you think that had he not been as shy as he was, that he would have been able to express things as well as and clearly as he did? 
No, I, I think you're absolutely right, David. And I, I don't know as much about Graham Greene. I'm certainly familiar with him, and my wife's a huge Graham Greene fan. Uh, and of course, in The Power and the Glory, there's such beautiful trouble. Right? The priest there, you both want to like him. And of course, he's a deeply conflicted person. Right. And Kirk, I think, in his own life, didn't have those kinds of conflicts because I do think he was intensely moral and driven mm. towards morality from the moment he came into existence, it seems to be there. But he is also, mm. and I don't know if this helps, maybe, you know, obviously his daughters can have a slightly different perspective than I would because I didn't grow up with him. I didn't <laughs> right things. But right. what shocked me, David, uh, especially when Annette very graciously allowed me to go through his papers, I have never encountered anyone in anyone I've studied. And I'm 51 now, and I've written a number of biographies, um, you know, and I think some have been successful. Others, I've not quite gotten into that, that person as well as I would have liked uh, or understood them, I think, failing on my part. But Kurt came alive for me because not only did he express himself well, so well, but he never stopped. It was, hmm. I just was overwhelmed by how much the guy wrote. Uh, you know, Wesley McDonald, who unfortunately has passed away, wrote in one of his books that Kirk probably wrote more in his life than the average intelligent American read in his <laughs> And I, I think there's really something to that. I even joked. In Crazy my, thought. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I even when I applied at Hillsdale for a sabbatical to be able to you know, spend a year on the biography, one of the things I noted in it was it was almost as though Kirk had a, a fifth limb that it, he just had an extra arm to type because he just you know it's stunning to go back and to see how much he produced and having been privileged to go through thousands upon thousands of his letters i can say without exaggeration david that there was maybe a typo in one out of every 1000 letters it's just <laughs> i don't know how the guy did it and he, you know he had a photographic memory and he was able to type on a manual typewriter roughly 120 words a minute yeah, that that's just stunning to think about. And I, there was a lot he had to say. So I, I agree with you completely. I think in part, his reticence to speak openly really did focus itself in the written word where he was just, he was a genius. I, I don't think there's any way around it. He was absolutely a genius. Hmm. You mentioned that he had a pretty defined moral sense, even as a child. Where do you think that came from? I mean, was that from his parents or was that from looking around and seeing um, a lack of a moral sense, kind of a moral uh, guide around him? Or was there you some... Know, when he writes about his childhood, he says that almost everyone he encountered was moral. He didn't encounter mm -hmm. immoral people. His teachers at public school, he thought were moral. The other students, he really liked, even if he didn't understand. Uh, there was always just something about him in the way that he... I, I, I'll put it this way, and I, I'm going to sound a little hagiographic hey, here, and I apologize for that, but I also, I don't know any other way to put it. Annette once told me, his widow once told me, and I think she's absolutely right, that everything Russell ever touched became magical. And there is a kind of holy innocence to him that I just don't see in a lot of other people. Now, you know, if that, if we want to argue that was his grandfather or his mother, or if that was God's grace, I just don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Maybe some of both. It may or have been. Yeah. yeah, I just, I, it's so prevalent and it's prevalent in his writings too. So, you know, he had a huge influence on Stephen King, which is kind of ironic um, when you think about what King has produced. And I think King's- At least in writer. recent years. Right, right. No, absolutely. Right. I mean, Salem's Lots. 
a brilliant novel. His earlier stuff's yeah. really stunning. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things I think that's just wrong about King that a lot of people probably like is when an evil act occurs in a King story, we get five or six pages of description of it, whatever it is, a murder, a rape, whatever it is. Mm. And you read some of Kirk's short fiction, which can be equally dark, but you know, he doesn't go into the details. He'll say, mm. you know, basically the bad guy, he put it better than I'm putting it, but the bad guy leered at her. And then we see a break in the story and a sentence later after the break, she wakes up. And of course, you know, she was raped, right? But yeah. it, it's more yeah. horrifying because yeah, he's not reveling in it. Or exactly. Lingering, yeah. And that's where I think his innocence is wild <laughs> because it actually provides a greater imagination than King can. And yet there is an innocence to it by not explaining it. And there, it makes it more, it makes the, the darkness even darker. If that makes sense. I'm not sure I'm explaining. Yeah, no, it, I, but, I think it but, does make sense. It does. It makes sense to me anyway. I can't speak for everyone who's listening. <laughs> sure. Hey, so he, you've already covered so many different things that he, that he worked on from his fiction to, you know, he wrote for National Review for however long. But he's, I think, I, I swear you mentioned this in your book. He felt, he referred to himself as lazy. <laughs> yes. So as someone who actually has a lazy streak, this is, uh, <laughs> this is confounding. So what, but what, so what, how, why did he feel, I mean, where does that come from? Yeah. yeah For someone I, who clearly was, I mean, if there's anybody who's never been lazy, it could not have been Russell Kirk. I don't know how to explain that, David, and I've given it a lot of thought. You know, uh, Christopher Dawson thought similar things about himself. And I, I think in Dawson's case, you know, we can verify that he suffered from depression. Uh, it's just so clear. I mean, he admitted it too, but, you know, he went through incredible anxiety. And it's in his letters to Frank Sheed. And people were really worried that he had a suicidal, you know, this is Dawson, not Kirk, that right, he had a right. suicidal tendency. And I've always envisioned that, that as I see Dawson, I think in his mind, at least, whether this was true or not, I can't verify, but he thought God demanded so much of him that he just couldn't mm. live up to it. Mm. And I think Kirk has that as well. It's kind of paralyzing. Yes, but for mm. Kirk, it was also kind of humorous. Um, I don't mm. think he took it as depression. I think he thought, wow, God, I can't believe you want this of me, but I'm going to go out and do it. And his uh. laziness was not at all what we call laziness. It was more... You know, nobody could ever manage Russell Kirk, and he did things on his own time, and he did them perfectly. But you know, he slept until five in the morning, or he was up. I'm sorry, excuse me. He slept. He he was up awake till five in the morning, and then he'd sleep until one in the afternoon. Huh. And I think that's it. Wasn't laziness? It was more nonconformity. Hmm. I think that's what he meant, but I'm not positive. Hmm. But I do think it was more everything's on his terms, and yet when it's on his terms, he does brilliantly. But he could. You can't imagine Kirk at a nine to five job. It's just. It's impossible to imagine. <laughs> and I think that's what he meant by laziness. Okay. That's less confounding. It makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I may not be right on that, but that's how I see it. One of so, the things. One of the things about. About the sheer volume of Kirk's work is that as you trace it, and I'm sure you recognize this, as you're one of the few people who have read probably almost everything you ever wrote, that you can sort of trace, I don't want to say the, I don't know if this is the right word, but the evolution of his thought um, and the, maybe the maturity of his thought, the, the, the sort of um, the digressions at times and the ways that he grew and things like that. 
And so you can you 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 write about how he was a skeptic, became who became a Stoic, who became a Catholic. Right. Um, you write you write in the book about how he was early on influenced by Babbitt and Moore, and then eventually, you know, Annette Kirk mentions that she believes that his guiding lights were Burke and Elliot and Dawson. Um, so given that we can sort of trace the I don't know if evolution is the right word. I'm just going to say it because I can't think of anything on the sure. screen. The evolution of his thought. How did he... What led him to his faith? Um, what led him to go in that journey from skeptic to stoic to to being in full communion with the Catholic Church? Um, and he, he's, it seems like his, his intellectual life... Um, was lived out very publicly. Like if you read something from the 40s or 50s and then you read something from the 70s or 80s or you know right before he died, you're going to see the differences there and that you can you know he taught you know even over the course of his column in the National Review, you know, his perspectives were changing on things and they were changing publicly because he was expressing all so much of what was inside him, he was expressing it publicly. Was his spiritual life and his journey from skeptic to stoic to being in communion with the Catholic Church was it lived out as publicly as the sort of intellectual life. And I know that there's overlap between an intellectual life and a spiritual life, but for the sake of conversation, I'm creating a dichotomy there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, again, wonderful question, David, with so many possibilities that we could take this conversation in. <laughs> uh, so one thing that he, so I've already mentioned he had the photographic memory and that lasted his whole lifetime. In fact, to the point almost of absurdity when you read what he was able to quote from years later, you know, 40 years later, he can memorize exactly where there were even word breaks on pages. So, and his students used to test him on, they thought it was hilarious and they would test him on this. So he's always reading, always, you know, from the moment he can. I mean, he, he had actually read most of Marx as well as most of Jefferson, even before he became a teenager. This is, there was something truly unbelievable and bizarre about his intellect. Great, but just hard to fathom. And he had read all that, he had digested all of that. And yet, because I think of the kind of spiritualism that he was raised in, he had never been presented with really anything other than a lot of skepticism, and a lot of rationality, and then this crazy spiritualism. So it would be hard for him as a young boy, especially someone who revered his mom and his grandfather so much, I think to have come to any kind of orthodoxy at all. It just wasn't something he encountered. Ironically, uh, he encountered it through Babbitt in college, even though Babbitt, well, we don't know. Yeah, there's always a story that he may have converted on his deathbed that some of his students told. But from the most part, it looks like Babbitt was just kind of a, a good humanist, never really a Christian humanist. But Paul Elmer Moore was a Christian. T.S. Eliot became a Christian. And these were all heroes for him. So there's, I think Annette's absolutely right in saying that Kirk became very comfortable with Eliot and Dawson in particular, as well as a few other figures of Burke. But it took him a bit to get to those. And on the way there, he met a number of people, including people at Michigan State when he was going to college. And he also encountered a number of people like Albert J. Nock, who mm. was once an Anglican priest and then an atheist. And he encountered Isabel Patterson, who was a pretty radical libertarian. And these were his first heroes. So, you know, he, if anything, his evolution in terms of his philosophy was from more of an almost anarchistic libertarianism. I don't want to take that too far, but he borders on not anarchy bomb throwing, but truly 
anti-statism, uh, really skeptical of government as a young man, to being much more comfortable with it later on in Burkean and Elliot and Dawson, you know, that understanding. But theologically, the one thing that I saw, David, and I, I'd be happy to be proven wrong about this, but from my reading, it was almost always, even when he was a Stoic, and then when he became a Catholic, the thing that overrode both of those and held them together was St. Augustine. Uh, even before he became a Catholic, he loved Augustine. And Augustine resonated so much with him that I think we could say that his whole life, he's an Augustinian. Uh, that, I think, is pretty clear. Again, I think it might be debatable, but as I see it in his earlier writings, he's so fascinated with the way Augustine approaches the world. He doesn't embrace Augustine's religious understanding until later, but it's there. So I think a few critical dates. You know, he's born in 1918. In 1953 to 54, he takes instruction from a Jesuit priest in Detroit and then decides at the end of that not to become Catholic. But then, of course, he meets Annette roughly six years later, and they become married. They marry each other in 1964. And Kirk converts fully to the Catholic faith in August of 64, about two months before the wedding. And he converts on St. Augustine's feast day and he takes the name Augustine. So he becomes Russell, becomes Russell Amos Augustine Kirk. So I don't know if that answers you, but I think there is at least that line of Augustinian thinking from day one, really, that he encounters as a young man all the way until the end of his days. But even when he dies, and I'm always astounded by this, even when he dies, he's got three books next to his bed. He's got the Bible. He's got Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and he's got Chesterton's Ballad of the White Horse. Hmm. You know, what an interesting mix to have on your deathbed. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I think they probably all meant something to him at somewhat equal levels. I, I'm not convinced he ever really overcame his paganism. I think it just melded into his Christianity. Hmm. You mentioned that he was very in, influenced by the extremism of Patterson and people like that. Yeah. Yeah. Was this was I guess this is somewhat similar to what you're saying in what you just said. Was his conservatism the the sort of conservatism that he was promoting and explaining and exploring for so many years? Was that a harnessing of that extremism of Patterson and, and those people, or was it a rejection of it and a correction of it? Yeah, I think um, I think it's both, David. Uh, when you look at the first edition of the conservative mind, it is filled with Nock and Patterson. And then as you watch the editions, of course, it ultimately ends up in the seventh revised edition, so almost an eighth edition. But over the years that, that Kirk revises it, Patterson just disappears completely. She's gone by uh, edition number two, which comes out in 1954, so a year later. And he starts substituting Nisbet, Robert Nisbet, and a few Dawson, uh, a few other figures. Mm -hmm. T.E. Holmes shows up. A number of uh, very serious humanists kind of replace that. Nock makes a bit of a comeback at the end of Kirk's life, and I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, but Nock fades in the first few editions and then comes back in the later editions. But some people People like Dan McCarthy used to be the editor of, of the American Conservative have done some really good work on Knock. My wife's writing a book on Knock's influence mm. on, on Rose Wilder Lane and oh, uh, wow. or Ingalls Wilder as well. But it's fascinating huh. to me. Look at Knock, who's kind of forgotten. You, you would know him, David, obviously, because of his liberal arts and a lot of libertarians remember because of his liberal, his, uh, his libertarianism. But, you know, at the time, you have people like Kirk, 
uh, Nisbet, Ray Bradbury, uh, William F. Buckley, all of them, and and radical libertarians too. Uh, and I can't remember the name right now. The guy who was the editor of of the Freeman at the time. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, but these guys, all of them, considered themselves uh, to be Nokians. And you know, they all thought National Review was founded as a Nokian journal. So in some ways, Kirk is the founder of American conservatism, modern conservatism. But Nock is really the bridge between the old right and the newer right of the 1950s, I think. And I, I haven't explored that too much. Uh, I think Dan is doing that. My wife is doing that. But I, there's going to be some interesting stuff uh, that's going to come out, I think, in the next 10 years or so, really showing how influential Nock was, not just on maintaining liberal education, but on the connection beneath, uh, between libertarianism and conservatism, too. It does feel like we're at a kind of cultural and political inflection point where so many things are changing so quickly in the next several years of, of um, academic writing and biographical writing is, is going to be looking at what influenced the moment that we're in right now. Do you, yeah, yeah, I agree. Given that, do you think that, what do you think Kirk would think of our present circumstances, our present climate? Uh, I mean, this is the million dollar question. Yeah. You said that he's the father of, um, you could say he's the father of, or the founder of, of kind of modern conservatism, but you know that that means that means multiple things to different people. Sure. Um, do you think that he would view, you know, the political climate that we're the very specific political climate of the last few years, the kind of upending of the last twenty five years of American politics? Do you do you think he would view that positively, even if he would look at the immoral side of thing, the the morality of it, and cringe at it, or would he reject pretty much the entire the entire political operation that that yeah. in, in which we exist right now? Yeah, I mean, this is such a critical question, David. And I said the other night, so I, I was very privileged to go down to Louisville and to speak for Gary Gregg's McConnell Center. And, and I got asked a similar question. And I, my response, and I feel a little guilty. I, yeah, about I thought this, about not asking it because I figure you're getting it a lot. But well, you know. <laughs> I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's a really great question. I feel guilty only because my answer sounds so uncharitable. Um, <laughs> I'm actually really, this is one of the few times. In 2018, I am both glad Kirk is not here. I'm glad he passed away when he did. And I know that sounds terrible, but I'm glad he didn't see this. I'm also very glad as a Catholic that my grandparents aren't alive right now. I think they would just, what's going on in the church right now would have crushed them. And I think Kirk would feel the same way, not just about the church, but I think about politics as well. You know, Kirk was a very humane man and he always saw the best in people. It was part of his gift that he would draw that whether he was, he was debating with Malcolm X or whether he was, you know, talking with uh, Tom Hayden, he could always see the best in his opponent. And he brought, I think it was one of his innocent charms. I think it was one of the great gifts I would say it was grace, but whatever it was, he had this gift to see the best in people. And so he always remained optimistic, even when he would lament where the world was going. He would always end on a note saying, look, all you have to do is believe in hope and hope exists. It's, it's the easiest of the virtues because it's just one of those things. If you believe it, it's there. If you don't, it's not. And so he always ended on a positive note. But he also predicated that on the belief that we could discuss things with one another. So when he died in 1994, you, you imagine, David, uh, you, you and I, I, I'm a little older than you, I think. But you know, imagine when we're in high school and we watch the McLaughlin group. You know, even when those guys fought with each other, 
you knew they went out and had a beer together afterwards. <laughs> and it, it's just changed. You know, uh, now it's so much, whether we're watching MSNBC or CNN or Fox, they just scream at one another. And we saw that in the Senate hearings. Right? It's just screaming, either that or we're watching two people who are obviously very broken people and the Senate just rakes them over the coals, right, for publicity's sake. I mean, it, it's a dastardly time. And I think Kirk would say there's hope. I mean, certainly you see it and I see it in the homeschool movement. Uh, there's great hope, stuff that you and I would never have envisioned when we were kids. You know, and all it takes is 5% of the population to be involved and you can change the world and they're doing it. So there are things that are to, uh, that we, I think we can be very, we can be Kirk scholars and very hopeful about. But I think at the moment, it's pretty bad. Uh, it doesn't mean it will be next year, but right now it's pretty tough, I think. And Kirk certainly would not like Trump. I mean, whatever he would think of his policies, Trump, you know, his sexual habits, his way of dealing with things, I think Kirk would be rather offended uh, in all kinds of ways. <laughs> okay, a couple of questions before I let you go. I know we got to wrap this up. Oh, sure. No, I hope that wasn't too editorial there, David. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I, I would, we could talk about it for a long time, but there's only, you know, Kirk, yeah, right, right. There's, a, there's a, Kirk, there's a lot of things we can talk about regarding him. And I want to make sure that I ask sure. a couple of questions for our listeners here. Absolutely. So we, we've we run a, several different things this week for Russell Kirk Week at Forma. And you know, we, we, ran a, we kind of ran a primer um, where we had you know, some of the basic tenets that he subscribed to were, right. were explained. But yes. if, you, if you had to sort of give the bullet points, I mean, I guess this is sort of the Russell Kirk 101 idea. If you had to say, these are the most essential core principles of Kirk's vision, where would you point towards? Or what would you point towards? And what do you think that, you know, there's this, there's these thousands and thousands and millions of words that he produced over the years. So many right. different articles that had so many different thesis statements in them. But if he had to boil down, it, or, if, well, I guess if you had to boil down these decades and decades of work, and you had to say, these are the things I think he would most care about us remembering him for. What do you think those things would be? So for me, David, and I, I had to do when I was, so I've already mentioned how overwhelmed I was by how much he wrote and right. just the perfection of it. So you, one of his great admirers. Yeah, it's hard to weed it out when there's nothing, nothing bad. No, that's right. And, and one of his great admirers who didn't share all of his views, certainly not his religious views, once wrote that watching Kirk compose a book or sitting there at the typewriter was probably akin to watching Beethoven write a symphony. Hmm. And, you know, we know that Kirk could actually do, not only did he write 120 word type, 120 words a minute, but he could carry on a conversation while he was doing that, that had nothing to do with the book. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. So that, I mean, there's- that, It's almost, annoying is what it is. It, it is. And it's overwhelming. I mean, where do we start with Kirk, right? I mean, how do you start analyzing that? Do you start with his short stories? Do you start yeah. with his novels? You know, yeah, where do yeah. you go with so that I think is really hard. I'm so glad you guys have spent the week doing this. I think that's just great for everybody. It's great for Kirk. Excuse me. Sorry, that did that. Uh, it's great for Kirk. And it's great, I think, for all of us to learn that. And especially anyone who cares about the liberal arts. You know, the Circe Institute is just the perfect, the perfect medium to express that. So here's the second thing. And this is, yeah, I can't help but get a little religious on this, David. Uh, what I... The second thing that overwhelmed me with Kirk, and it overwhelms me more than his writing, I was shocked when I started reading him. So I, 
I first read him in 1989. I first read The Conservative Mind when I was a senior at college and the wall was coming down. So hmm. obviously it's going to have a huge influence on me just because yeah. of the timing, if nothing else. I'd never read him before. I was a hardcore libertarian. I'd read you know, Friedman, Hayek, Mises, but I'd never read real conservatism up to that point. And I was a really hardcore libertarian. Uh, so I'm reading this. You were and- a hardcore libertarian college student in the late 80s? Oh my God. Well, I was a debater between 1982 and 86 in high school. I was hardcore. Um, oh my gosh, from Kansas? Oh yeah. <laughs> there, there were no liberals in Kansas. You were either a conservative or a libertarian. <laughs> so, uh, and my mom was in cold water. I mean, we, they, I grew up with that. But So, you know, here I am in college and I encounter conservatism for the first time. And I remember very clearly thinking, wow, this guy's just really charitable. There's something in the way he writes. It's not, and I love Friedman, but Friedman could just dig and dig and dig at somebody. And there was such a black and white view of the world. And to read Kirk, it was so nuanced. You know, it's like, yeah, sure, we we know this guy was bad on this, but he was great on this. And why would we focus on the bad when we see what good he did? And I was really surprised by that, even as a, a college student. And so when I started going through his letters, I started seeing in the 1950s, long before he'd met Annette, People would come over from Eastern Europe, 1956. Uh, Dear Dr. Kirk, I came over to America. I escaped from Hungary. And I read your book, uh, The Conservative Mind, and it means everything to me. However, I'm broke and trying to get a a job. What would you recommend? And Kirk, and I'm not exaggerating, David, he would take $100 bills and he would stuff them in the mail and he would send them to these guys. Hmm. And I thought, whoa, that's, that's powerful. And then I start reading more. And I start reading that he and Annette, when they got married, they used to drive around Grand Rapids and pick up homeless people. They would go to crisis shelters and pick up women who'd been beaten. They would find women who had been left by the man who had impregnated them and they're, they're lost. They would take them all to Macosta. And then Kirk, there were times where his students, his daughters would wake up and they didn't know who'd be there in the morning because there might be 30 Ethiopians who had showed up overnight. And they may live there for the next five years. And one of my great colleagues, one of my closest friends here, Yvonne Pongrasik, who's my age and he's an economist here, his dad and his mom and he escaped from Yugoslavia and Kirk housed them for years. And now, you know, here he is, one of my colleagues. And you read about Kirk never having a bigoted bone in his body. Um, It didn't matter if you were Jewish or, uh, uh, or Catholic or if you were black or white, he didn't care. He just didn't care. You see that from 1940s on. doesn't matter. You're human and you need help. He helps you. When Kirk died in April of 1994, the Kirks, even though the conservative mind had sold over a million copies, his first novel, The Old House of Fear, had sold many millions of copies. Kirk had brought in millions of dollars. He was getting upwards of $15,000 a lecture. They were broke. And it wasn't because Kirk was a bad money manager. It was because he gave it all away um, everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> this guy. And, I, and so I ended the book on this and I thought, if I started my book with this, no one will read it. They'll just put it down and say, this is crazy. Um, and I had, I had to make a decision. This was the most important thing about Kirk in my mind, but it had, I had to earn it. He had earned it. I had to earn it in writing it. And I'm still not sure I'm totally successful, David, but to me, Kirk was the example, I mean, the model of what every Christian should be, and probably none of us are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's overwhelming. It's as great as Mother Teresa in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet here he was just living it out in every day, 
every day. <laughs> it's just so it's absurd. And yet that's the innocence, David, that I was trying to get at 45 minutes ago. <laughs> just that, you know, no matter what, you help somebody. It's just what you do. Money is no different than any talent we have. You have it, you earned it, you give it away. Yeah, that's what it is. And I, I'm even saying this to you, David, I'm getting a little emotional in here and I'm not trying to, but it's no matter how many times I tell the stories about Kirk's charity, it's just, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. That to me is what we should remember. And yet, ironically, it's that thing, you know, by Kirk giving himself away, Kirk is most Kirk when he's least Kirk. Just like mm-hmm. every saint is most a saint when they're least the human person that they are. Just mm-hmm. something profound about that that mm-hmm. I can't explain. And I'm not that good. <laughs> My gosh, in no That's, way am I that. In no way. No, not even close. It's remarkable that someone so, who is so um, intellectually gifted and who dwells so often in the realm of ideas, I suppose, um, he doesn't He doesn't just stay, his ideology doesn't remain abstract. Never. It's sort of... It's so tangible. Um, incarn- it's incarnated in the way he, the way he lives. Yeah, beautifully put, David. I mean, it is in every moment. You know, he even they they have one of the guys who lived with him was an ex-convict who had stolen. Uh, he was on parole from both a New York and a Pennsylvania prison, and showed up in Macosta in 1969. And Kirk called the parole officer and had him reprimanded to his custody. And this guy Clinton Wallace ended up living with Kirk until he died in 1978. Uh, burned down their house in 1975 by an accident, burned down their whole house. And he's buried right next to Kirk in St. Michael's Cemetery in Macosta. And his, it says Clinton Wallace. You know, he was a professional hobo and con man. And, and it says Clinton Wallace, Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, of the road. And you know, that's Kirk. That's his innocent romantic streak. Guy's not a hobo. He's not a con. He's an interesting guy. <laughs> that's just, that's how Kirk's the best on. of him, huh? Yeah, always, always. In everything, Malcolm X, Arthur Schlesinger, it didn't matter. <laughs> mm. they, they were all interesting to him. Mm. All right, here's all my last reflection of God. Mm. Mm. Here, here's my last question for you. This is sort of this is this is probably the easy one. Um, if if uh, well, it's, I guess it's two parts. So you know, maybe it shouldn't have said last question. If you um, if people are not as familiar with Kirk, uh, but maybe they know who he is, they've read excerpts, maybe they've read a little bit in college or. They've been told they should should read by maybe by us or something. Uh, Where would you tell them to start? Um, Both, and here's the two part part. Both in terms of his his fiction writing, and in terms of his uh, nonfiction. We'll just well, I'll just keep it that that broad in in each of those each of those cases. No, yeah. Uh, So I I would say I don't think it's his best book, but it's the one he's most famous for, and it's really the one that shaped all modern conservatism, uh, at least up through Reagan. I think. Once Reagan was gone, this kind of faded out and we started seeing the neocons and basically the imperialists, I think, really in a lot of ways taking over. Uh, Or I should say the imperialist is too strong, but those who are really expansionist, uh, which Kirk was not. I mean, Leviathan should remain small, but home and abroad. So, you know, a lot of that fades after 1989 and with the Bush president, first Bush presidency. But up until then, from about 1953 until 89, I think. You couldn't do wrong. You could never go wrong by reading The Conservative Mind. It, it is, it's a great work. You know, whether it's his best work or not is questionable, but it is a great work. It's one of the most influential books of the 20th century. So I think it's worth starting there. Now, if you go into it, David, uh, 
not just you, but I mean, anyone young Republican goes into it and says, I want to know what it means to be a Republican. You're going to come away really disappointed uh, because it's not, it's, it's a series of 29 biographies all put together. Yeah, this is the mind, the tradition. It's an examination of the Anglo-American tradition of conservatism. So and not, of course, it's not that a conservative- political activism. It is absolutely not a handbook or a platform or a program. It is yeah. very intentionally meant to just say, this is a viable tradition of the West. And, mm. you know, he starts with Burke, but it really, in a sense, it starts with Plato. And it's everyone who influences Burke and then who Burke influences after that. So it's really, it's a, it's a book of the great tradition, but of a recent understanding of the great tradition. And Kirk is very liberally minded in the educational sense. For his fiction... You know, he only wrote three novels and 20 short stories. So you could actually get through his fiction pretty quickly. Uh, His best short stories are collected. And I don't know why they did this. They left out one of the stories. And so it's not a complete collection. But there's a, a book called Ancestral Shadows that came out in 2004 that collects 19 of his 20 short stories. And that, it's out of print, but you can still find it and get it for reasonable prices in hardback on ABE and other booksellers. So I I would start there, but his best novel by far, and I think it's his greatest work of everything he wrote is his last novel, 1979, but it's very complex. And I would never start with it uh, for anybody (laughs) because what he does is he has every T.S. Eliot character from every poem and play meet for three days before Ash Wednesday in a haunted Scottish castle. And it is, it is genius. But if you don't know Elliot, you'll, you'll be lost from page one. So I think it's his greatest work, but it's not something anybody who's new to Kirk or Elliot should ever jump into. <laughs> You'd probably throw the book at the wall if you did. Uh, but it, if you know Elliot, it is, it just doesn't get better. It's equal. I won't say it's equal to the Silmarillion, but Kirk consciously wrote it in the style of the Silmarillion, and he was heavily influenced by it. And there is that kind of archaic, it's world building in the best sense of being able to make sense of Eliot's world. Uh, it's just stunning. And it's horrible, too. It's uh, it's dark. There's a satanic figure in it who may be Satan. Actually, he's the Lord of the Hollow Dark. That's the. Did I mention the name? I may not have even mentioned the name. Sorry. It's Lord of the Hollow Dark. Is the <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I get so into this. Okay. Um, but, you know, he's probably Satan. Uh, and he, so it's, it's an examination of sin and hell, but there are a lot of redemptive purgatorial moments in it as well. Mm. Just, it's mm. beautiful. Mm. Well, I need to feed the studio to our to 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 someone else so i should we should sign off but thank oh, you so much for joining me yeah I'm so um, honored yeah, anytime i can talk about kirk yeah it's it's a blessing and it's great talking to <laughs> you david it's been too long since we've seen each other so yeah likewise um well again thank you so much thank you for uh for your biography i really enjoyed it i i some of these what i like about it is it's not 1100 pages long <laughs> so many biographies <laughs> Of great people are so long, and who's got time? It's my for that? longest. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Well, but thank you. I had a great time writing it. Well, it shows. It shows. I'll never get tired of thinking about her. Well, and it shows that you enjoy talking about him as well. So I really, again, I really appreciate you joining me for the podcast. And uh, well, I just like talking. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, like I said, I should sign off. But again, thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. God bless. You too. Bye-bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.